That voice you heard there was Coach Dale Clayton, who heads up our Racial Unity Task Force. And I don't believe Dale has been on campus with us before here, um, but hopefully will be uh, at some point. We can learn more about what the what that group is doing to help lead us in some of the conversations that you see uh, that you heard there. That was a conversation with uh, Leanne Swords and Jay Strother at the church at Station Hill, one of our sister campuses with Coach Clayton, and they were talking about the work of the task force and our racial unity initiatives as a church. During this time, uh, we are starting a series, three-week series, on us as the church, being the church. We are the church. And what we just got to hear uh, Susan proclaim is such good evidence of that. I'm so grateful for that testimony and all that is going on because the, way we can, the ways we continue to be the hands and feet of Jesus in light of whatever is going on in our world. And it's been tougher over the last few months in some ways. But we have found creative ways to do just that, our food pantry uh, being a prime example of that. And it sure does make it a lot easier to ask uh, you to, to remember how to give, which we have a slide for that, how we can give, which is through text message uh, or um, online or the old good old-fashioned way of mailing in a check. But it makes it so much easier for us to ask people to participate in giving their resources um, as well as their time and energy uh, when we are excited about what God is doing and the opportunities that God is giving us to connect with, yes, our immediate community and people that we are not only influencing with the good news of the gospel anytime, anywhere, with anybody, but people we're actually getting to know, as Susan's testimony alluded to. Uh, relationships are being made through the ways that God is allowing us to be his hands and feet, uh, Jesus' hands and feet in our world around us. So we are excited about that this morning. I uh, Raise your hand if you um, know about or appreciate the Enneagram. Any, anybody? A few hands. Okay, that's cool. A lot of us don't. Uh, it's not the the be-all, end-all of personality assessments, but I like it a lot and uh, have, have grown fond of it. I have an uncle-in-law, Leslie Ann's uncle, Uncle Joe, um, whom we love dearly, who is one of the foremost teachers on uh, the Enneagram and things around it, uh, in the, actually in our country. And so he's fun to talk to about it. So I've learned some things over the year. I've learned that I'm a nine. A nine is a peacemaker. Not uh, maybe more a peacekeeper than a peacemaker, but uh, peacemaking tends to be a little messy, and nines don't like conflict. But uh, I'm a I'm an evolving nine. I'm a three in health, and if that interests you, give me a shoot me an email, and I'll I'll let you know uh, a few more things I know as an enneagram hack. But to be a nine in an election season is tough. To be a pastor who is a nine in an election season is tough. Because I want everybody to get along at all times. And that's just not always the way it is. So, what, what do we do when we, when we can't get along as well as we wish we could? Or we're more frustrated with people that don't think just like us? Well, I'm here to call your attention to the importance of prayer, as we just did together. To the importance of remembering what Susan just said, that we're to love one another. The importance of remembering how we are to be drawn back to God's word continually. One of my favorite theologians is Eugene Peterson. He passed away a couple years ago. One of my favorite stories about him, I don't know if I've told you this or not, but we've been together 18 months now, so this is the point in which I started repeating stories. So 
When I do that, just shoot me an email and say, hey, Brandon, we've heard that one before. Maybe don't use that one next time. But I don't know if I've told you this one, so I'm going to go for it. Eugene and his sweet wife would spend every Monday morning together. As a pastor, I guess Mondays were his day, day off during the week, I think is how that worked out. And they would spend Monday morning together. And about 9 o'clock, they, would, they lived in one of the most beautiful places on earth at the foot of the Rocky Mountains in Montana. If they would take off at 9 a.m. and they would walk for an hour and a half together. And they would not say a word to each other. Now, some of us know there are plenty of 90 minutes to go by where we're happy to not talk to our spouse for that long. But that wasn't the point of this. They weren't mad. They weren't stewing. It was intentional. They prayed for 90 minutes up the mountain. Then they had the snack they packed. Then they walked back home and they talked about all that God had taught them. And he tells stories of what he learned from that weekly spiritual practice. It was done later in life. They didn't do that the whole time they were married. Uh, Leslie Ann and I don't have three hours a week to (laughs) take a hike together right now. Soon, because Howell's 12, and he's about to become the parent, but he doesn't know that yet. (laughs) You'll be fine, bud. You'll be fine. But they practice that. Doesn't that sound nice? Can you imagine that much time with God, hearing from God? Now, when we open up the Word together, we're, we're not hiking in the Rocky Mountains, but we are hearing from God. We are hearing God's Word. So this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter Uh, predominantly chapter 2, but a little bit back into chapter 1. I just want to read the first 10 verses. Um, And I want you to hear it. This is time with the Lord. The Lord's word for us. Chapter 2. Verse 1. Is that chapter 2, Jay? Or is that chapter 1? Thank you. I thought it was chapter 1. Seemed like a greeting. My Bible, y'all, is sitting in my living room. So I've got this app. I'd rather have the pages. Our life's kind of scattered right now. Let's focus in on the Word. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, he calls us, are are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. Now, for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, well, this one has become the cornerstone. 
and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. May God add God's blessing to the reading of God's word. Now, I want to go back with you to chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, to set the context for this a little bit. Because what Peter is doing here in chapter 2 is talking very specifically about what the church is to be, who we are as a chosen race, as God's dearly beloved, God's possession. But in chapter 1, Peter set the stage for how we are able to be that. Do you know how? Because Jesus. In chapter 1 in 1 Peter is this beautiful, what we call Christological uh, chapter that, that, that puts into perspective just who it is that we follow and are being formed by. Verse 22 says, since you have pure, in chapter 1, since you have purified yourself, yourselves, everything's plural, speaking to the church, since you purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other. We just sang that, such a perfect song, that Christy Knuckles song, Oksana. So that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Because you've been born again, not of imperishable, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Back to chapter two, verse one, hear it again. Therefore, rid yourselves. This is a big call on our lives here. Rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. And he says, like newborn infants. Desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Love one another constantly, the text says. And that's a good word for us this week and any week for that matter. And we do it, the text says, because we have been born Again, born again in our belief in Jesus as the word of God, as, as, as God's son, as our savior. And we should desire Jesus. We should desire God's word. John 1 teaches us that God's word is really Jesus. And then it comes alive in scripture and comes to us that we can read about God's word in these pages. What a blessing that is but that we would desire God's word, that we would desire Jesus above all else, before all else, like babies desire milk. I think about our third son, Lewis, and his, his frenulum wasn't right when he was born and he couldn't latch on for a while. And he was so frustrated and he had to have a procedure and it finally got better. But to see that little bitty child, he was little, little bitty child not be able to get the food that he so deeply desired made me think of this passage because I saw it right there, how much he desired it. And I wonder, do I desire the word? Do we desire as a community, Jesus, God's word like that, like Peter is calling us to here so that 
we may become who we are to become. So our community will become the community it's supposed to become. That's what growing into salvation in verse 2, like newborn infants desire the milk, the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. That's what growing up into salvation means. Becoming who we're supposed to become. All right, so I watched a show this week called The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Really fantastic, actually. And I'm not a chess player. I actually have never learned to play. I think I would love it, but my boys have started. to They, they know how to play. And so I was drawn. This is about a chess player, this, this young girl. And the lead actor, I'm not giving it away, no spoilers here, but early on in the show, she develops a dependency for tranquilizers. It was actually in her foster home back in the early 60s. And I don't know if this was a, I've not ever read this about history, but the, these children were given these tranquilizers in this foster home. And the way the show portrayed it, it was as if it was just a, a means to keep them under control. But with her, it developed a dependency pretty quickly in her that runs throughout, throughout the, uh, the show. And that, that brings to mind, as we're talking about the church, this is an aside, but I read about a sister church in our community, not a part of, of our eight campuses this morning, that is actually displaying the pictures of all 350 foster children in the state of Tennessee who are without a home this morning. And they're having a, a, a morning devoted to, to foster care and, 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 all that, and adoption and all that's around that. And that's just so moving. It was to me when I read about that because this is a time when we could very easily be swept up into you know everything that's going on in our country and be totally singularly focused on that, but they're turning their attention to a need that is ever present and not going away. And in this show, it was a room, it was a, a house full of full of girls who were all orphans, and she quickly became dependent on these tranquilizers. Now, as we know, prescribed. Correctly, Ativan or Valium or the like can be restorative for someone. But they must be used per the doctor's recommendations. And it got me thinking about one of Leslie and my wife's a nursing instructor at Vanderbilt. And she has all these students. And there was a student from a few years ago, I remember Leslie and telling me about, who had come um, from another part of the country. Anyway, she was talking to Leslie Ann about a lot of the patients they were seeing in the hospital here. And so often the patients in our hospitals here are, are so sick. Obviously, they're in the hospital. But a ton of their challenge comes from how they eat, leading to having a hard time being healthy. And she was seeing person after person whose diets were very poor, separate from whatever their condition happened to be, their illness, which at least played some role in their not being well. And she was commenting about what she was learning through nursing school about the importance of food. Specifically, food is our first medicine. And this is true about the things we put in our bodies, about medicines. Food is medicine. Now, in light of this, my family, Leslie Ann and I, I say our family, we haven't gotten our kids in on it yet, but we've tried this thing called Whole30 a couple of times. Maybe you've heard of it. 30 days, all whole foods. No sugar, no dairy, no legumes, no grains. So it takes away pretty much 95% of everything I was consuming. For 30 days. Not forever. It's not designed to be forever. It's designed to be sort of a reset to try to train our bodies to understand what it is that might make us not feel well when we remove it or when we, you know, as we're 
consuming it. I got to tell you, it was really hard, especially at the outset. Day four or five, man, my head was spinning, literally spinning. I was finding myself holding the jar of peanut butter (laughs) in the kitchen, wondering if anyone would catch me taking a big spoonful. My body was literally detoxifying. But at the same time, I got to tell you, I felt better. Like my whole body, digestion, the way I was sleeping, all of it. I just felt so much better. And I remember feeling better than I've ever felt. And it was weird. At at the same time, I wanted to eat a whole box of Snickers bars. But I also felt so clean, so rested, so strong. And as we kept eating whole foods and not eating junk, we began to desire the junk less. And we kept feeling better and better. In a sense, we were growing into ourselves, who we were really supposed to to be um, as eaters. I know it sounds silly, but it was undeniable that the food we were eating was healing us, making us more whole. Now, the goal of Whole30 is not to end our relationship with junk food forever. That wouldn't be any fun. I'm not advocating for a world with far fewer Snickers bars. I'm advocating for a worldview that understands and lives out what our text tells us today, that the Lord tastes even better than any kind of candy. That the metaphor of babies desiring spiritual milk in the way that they do be what our chief desire is for, God's word. Now, Peter continues his explanation of what the church is to look like in verse four. He said, as you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So so Peter calls Jesus the living stone. And he calls us living stones as well. Did you catch that? Now, there are plenty of stones throughout the swath of, of the narrative of Scripture. Plenty of stories that mention stones. One of my favorites is in Genesis 28. You may remember Jacob was traveling from Beersheba toward Haran, and he, it took more than a day to get there, and so he went to sleep along the way. There was no Best Western or Hampton Inn along the way, so um, he slept on the side of the road, and he took a what for his pillow? He took a stone. You remember that? Now, you've probably slept on a stone before, right? You left your pillow at home on that road trip. And the Best Western or Hampton Inn hadn't you know, invested in the latest pillow technology in the last, I don't know, ever. And you just had to manage, right? And maybe the discomfort, if you're anything like me, the, the not having your own pillow, it, it kind of makes us able to remember our dreams a little more. Do you ever have that experience? Like when you're in an odd place? And well, Jacob had that experience right here. This is when he dreamed about the big old ladder that stretched all the way to heaven. And when climbed up it, he got to chat with God, the creator, or maybe since we're talking about living stones, we'll say the master builder, God. And God told Jacob how much God was going to bless Jacob and his family. This mirrored the promise God gave to Abraham earlier in Genesis. God said, know that I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. So Jacob woke up energized and he blessed that stone and he left it there as an altar to God. Now that is an important stone. 
but not as important as the stone that Peter's talking about. That's the stone of all stones. The, the stone, that stone is the stone that Jacob's stone is foreshadowing, I believe. It's Jesus. And, and there Peter says it after calling Jesus the living stone. He says, we are too. We too are living stones. Right there in verse 5, you yourselves are living stones. And God is taking us and working us and building us into a community that is acceptable to God through Jesus, the living stone, the foundation, the corner stone. Is this confusing? I hope not. I know I went pretty quickly from eating the right foods to sleeping at a Best Western badly to Jesus being the living stone, allowing God to make us into a spiritual house of living stones pretty quickly. But that progression is exactly what Peter is laying out here. Jesus must be our desire, and he is the cornerstone of what God is ultimately doing, which is building God's kingdom among us and through us. Now, this is really important, y'all, because in a time like now, when things seem so fragmented, we can easily be swept up into what is the hollow theology of we are just biding our time here in order to be over there where God is. But if we take seriously what God said to Jacob and what I believe God is saying to us in the whole Jesus story in what God has done and is doing through Jesus, we are not people who are destined supposed to be over there. The sweet by and by is how I learned it as a kid. Nothing wrong with that. Heaven is going to be wonderful, but it's not where we're supposed to be right now. We're here. We are citizens of another kingdom, Philippians 3 teaches us, specifically called to live in this world. Anywhere, anytime, with anybody. Being built up, growing up into our salvation, becoming exactly who God is calling us to be. Being built into this spiritual house. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, is what God said to Jacob. Now, the story, uh, there is a story of three bricklayers that you may have heard. It's a very popular story. You can find it, about 6,000 different variations of it on the internet. So I'm not, you know, breaking ground by telling you this story, but I love this story. It's a multifaceted parable with many variations, but it's rooted in an authentic story. And it caught my attention because it's rooted in the time that Christopher Wren, famous architect, lived in England, and specifically around the time in 1666 in the Great London Fire. You history buffs will remember. And it was during this time that the world's most famous architect, Christopher Wren, was commissioned to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. Maybe you've been to St. Paul's Cathedral. Leslie Ann and I went a couple of years ago. We actually got to attend Evensong there, and it was an amazing experience to do that with the people of God, but also do it within the confines of Wren's incredible architecture. This is truly an incredible cathedral. And one day during the reconstruction around 1671, Wren was on site and he observed three bricklayers on a scaffold. One was crouched and one was standing and one was standing quite tall, working very hard and fast. And to the first bricklayer, Wren asked the question, what are you doing? To which the bricklayer replied, I'm a bricklayer. I'm working hard laying bricks to feed my family. 
The second bricklayer responded to the same question. Well, I'm a builder. I'm, I'm building a wall. But the third bricklayer, the most productive of the three, when asked the question, what are you doing? He replied with a gleam in his eye. And he said, I'm a cathedral builder. I'm building a great cathedral to the Almighty. Now, one of my favorite applications of this diverse parable, this parable that has many applications, is that one must understand the mission of one's organization. And if we are going to be the church that God is calling us to be, growing up into our salvation as we are, as Peter understood we are called to do, we have to understand the mission of the church. The third builder understood it. And we must constantly evaluate as a church whether or not we are living as those who understand the church's mission. I love how Eugene Peterson talked about the church and about Jesus. He said you can't have one without the other. Where Jesus is, the church will be. And where the church is, there Jesus is as well. And it has helped me to shift my understanding of creation in this sense. That God did not finish creation for Adam and Eve in the garden to simply enjoy as much as God created a splendid creation for Adam and Eve to continue within. And then sin happened and things got much more complicated than they were ever intended to be. But our charge is not different from Adam and Eve's in the garden. God is still building a cathedral with you and me, a spiritual house, a kingdom to be exact. And we are called to help build for that kingdom and living stones. What a great metaphor. We are both the building blocks and through Christ, we have become the builders as well. We are building for a cathedral, a kingdom to be exact. And yes, God is ultimately going to finish it, but we've been set apart to participate and participate. We must. It is exactly how we grow into our salvation. As I finish, let's look at verse 9 again together because this is how this plays out. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is special. We're special. Now, I know we're not perfect. Maybe we've come to believe we aren't special. We've got a lot of bad PR out there. But we have to take Peter's words to heart here. We have to take God's words to Jacob in Genesis 28 to heart. We have to take seriously who we are called to be. In our formation, we have to seek to get rid of our own junk, as verse 1 encouraged us, to rid ourselves of malice, deceit, envy, slander. You know the list. And we have to love one another constantly, remembering who we are by remembering whose we are. Living stones built upon the living stone by the master builder. Let's pray.